0: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Well, today is George Washington's birthday. Yes, that's right, the actual date, not the Monday before it or the Monday after the weekend or anything like that. Today is the day of George Washington's birthday. George Washington, as our first president, as the general who led American forces during the Revolutionary War, has achieved almost a mythic status in American history. There have been probably tens of thousands, maybe more, of books written about him. He's been a a character in everything from movies, television shows, even comic books. But when it comes to actually getting to know the truth about George Washington, his history and the facts, I was eager to do a deep dive into George Washington's life as a politician, as a military leader, as a man, and I wanted to try and find something new. So I researched far and wide, and I reached out to a lot of friends of mine who are scholars when it comes to presidential biographies, and repeatedly the book that I found on the list of best Washington biographies, and the book that was recommended to me by friends who study this stuff, was George Washington: The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. And I'm just thrilled that David O. Stewart, a best-selling author of history and historical novels, who uh, who actually wrote that book, George Washington: The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, has agreed to join me. David, it's great to talk with you. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: So, David, when we talk about a lot of figures that are well-known in American history, obviously uh, there's a lot of folklore that involves certain mythic figures, especially the far back you go, the more folklore there is. Sometimes that leads to historical figures, especially presidents, being a little overrated. Sometimes it leads to them being a little underrated. Uh, George Washington, was he really so great? (laughs)
1: Uh, It's a a fair question. Uh, We don't have much sense of him. You know, he was born 291 years ago. Uh, It's a long time. And, you know, we don't have the ways of remembering him through film or even audio tape that we have for uh, so many others. So or even photographs. So he's not immediate. Um, He also was sort of a, a, a buttoned up personality in many instances. So with friends, he would unwind, but not in public. So he's not an easy guy to get to know. But the fact is, without him, there might very likely not be a United States. And he was so pivotal and he so dominated our public life for the first 20 years um, I I just can't say there's anybody more important.
0: Now, I think a lot of people, even people that have just the the most mediocre knowledge of American history, know that he was the first president and they know that he led uh, the United States military during the Revolutionary War. Before that, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of curiosity about what his life was like. Aside from uh, chopping down cherry trees like crazy and telling the truth about it, what was he actually doing with his life before the revolutionary war?
1: As a very young man, uh, he became very uh, engaged with what was then the frontier western Virginia and Western Pennsylvania and uh was as a surveyor then as a sort of public figure and ultimately as a as a soldier during the French and Indian War again as a very young man uh that didn't all end very well uh his military experience during the French and Indian War uh w- was to have to fight Indians in the woods and the Indians were a lot better at it than the Virginians were that he was leading. It was very frustrating and he ended up leaving the military and not having draped himself in uh, glory. As then he gets married and about 27, 28, he remakes himself. He Uh, inherits Mount Vernon, the wonderful estate we all associate with him on the Potomac River. He decides he's going to make it as a uh, uh, farmer and does okay at that, not great. But he also goes into politics. And we don't think of him as a politician, but he was actually a working politician for most of his uh, adult life and a very good one. And that was what I wanted to... Unpack, and I think he had this remarkable uh, apprenticeship in local government and colonial affairs for longer than he ever was a soldier, where he learned how to be an effective politician, how to lead, and how to forge consensus. Uh, and that those were the skills he was able to use and to make the united states frankly
0: and for the record that story about the chopping down of the cherry tree that wasn't accurate right
1: not at all yeah. um, <laughs> no, the- nor did he throw a silver dollar over the potomac <laughs> um it,
0: i really enjoyed the aspects of your book and i just uh picked up your book yesterday and so I did, didn't get to read it at the leisurely pace that I'd like to but what, one of the things that I really enjoy with your book is you do chronicle Washington's early political career. It's interesting to me because he's the highest ranking general in American history but when we think of military leaders, even people that later go into politics, people like uh, like Eisenhower for instance usually most of their career pre retirement Retirement from the military, it's almost devoid of uh, political involvement. How did Washington balance being a soldier, being a surveyor, and being a politician, going all the way back to his time with the House of Burgesses in Virginia? I mean, it sort of, sort of seems like three separate career paths that he was pursuing simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've been chastised by military people to remember that the military can be a very political place, uh, that there's a lot of uh, jockeying around that goes in, sure. on inside the military. But the fact is um, he was not a full-time soldier except for the eight years of the uh, revolution. And the rest of his life, you know, in his mature life, he lived to be 67. Let's say there's 50 years. Um he was engaged principally in other pursuits and in those pursuits, and particularly when he becomes the master of Mount Vernon and he becomes uh, a significant uh, landowner uh, that involved public life that involved getting involved in his community. And he was always deeply engaged in it in the house of Burgesses, which was legislative where he served 17 years, wow. uh, twice as long as he led the Continental Army during the Revolution. Uh, He was a justice of the Fairfax County Court, which was an administrative body as well as a judicial body. And he also was on the vestry of his Anglican church, which had public responsibilities. So he was really a a, a local political macher or, or figure, and a significant one. And he made himself into one. He didn't start out as one but he figured out how to do it. And that was, in many ways, the most impressive thing to me, because in that era, oratory was the coin of the realm in politics. That's how you became great. Patrick Henry, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the great leaders were expected to be great speakers. Washington was a terrible speaker. He had a thin voice. He hated public speaking. Um, He was always shy about his own education, Hmm. and he avoided it, so he had to figure out other ways to do it and other ways to distinguish himself, which he did through taking on hard problems. His brand essentially became – and that's a 21st century phrase, of course, but his brand became the man who could get things done, the man you could rely on, a man you could trust, and – you know, when you think about it, that's a
0: pretty powerful brand. Oh yeah, uh, no, no question about it. Uh, you you do spend some time going into his role as the president of the Constitutional Convention. Now, obviously, after the uh, Revolutionary War had ended, George Washington, I don't think anybody would dispute, was the biggest celebrity in the country. Now, as such, I can see a lot of different people wanting to attach themselves to him and to his brand and to have his celebrity around whatever came out of that Constitutional Convention. How did he actually do... As president of the Constitutional Convention, was it mostly a figurehead role or was he actually involved in the shaping of what became the Constitution?
1: That's a great question, because he did hold himself above a lot of the back and forth that went on at the convention. His job was to ensure order, to make things, uh, to make make sure people were Observing proper protocol, but he didn't bring motions. He didn't get involved in negotiating individual sections. What he had, or phrases in the Constitution, what he had done, though, was before he got there, he had expressed very clearly his views in private letters. And this is a period when private letters of a political nature were shared, they were shown to other people. So it was private, but not really. And he made clear the things he thought the Constitution had to do, that it had to establish an executive branch, which we hadn't had under the Articles of Confederation, which is our first effort at the Constitution, that the national government had to be able to levy taxes without state approval. We'd always required that every state approve a national tax, so we never had one because there was always at least one state that said no. And finally, that the national government had to be supreme, it had that the states could not ignore what the national government told them to do. Otherwise, you don't have a nation. He made those clear, and they became completely uncontroversial. Now, I'm sure he had engagement with people outside the convention. He was a socializer. He went out to dinner most nights. But I think he was very proper and did not You know, proselytize, but they all knew what he thought. They all knew he was essential and that he would be the first president. And so the things he had made clear ahead of time that he wanted, they were just done. Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, We're talking with uh, David O. Stewart. He's the author of the book George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. We've had a a wide variety of personalities in the 45 individuals that have been president of the United States. You know, one thinks of someone like Donald Trump and whether you love his politics or you hate his politics, I don't think you could dispute the fact that he has been driven his whole life by just extreme ambition. Uh, Someone like Jimmy Carter, who we're also hearing a lot about this week, uh, probably much more humble and not really driven by that same sense of ambition, probably true of uh, someone like Gerald Ford as well. When we think of George Washington, at least when I think of George Washington, I think of someone so consumed with service. But what was the reality? Where was George Washington uh, in terms of the ambition scale? Was he closer to Donald Trump or Jimmy Carter?
1: I genuinely think there's probably only two or three presidents who didn't have much ambition, Uh, maybe Chester A. Arthur and a Mm. couple of others. Washington was filled with ambition. He wanted to be something great, and he wanted to achieve great things. But he never let that overpower the values that he cared about. So, you know, the two most important things he did— were when the Revolutionary War ended, he resigned and went home. He didn't continue to command the army. He didn't take over the government, which he certainly could have done. He just went home, and that just earned the trust of every American. He wasn't power crazy. He would walk away. And then as president, after two terms, he declined running for a third term, even though most of his friends insisted that he had to. Again, he wanted to be sure that this was a nation that governed itself. That was the whole point of setting up the United States. And he was, you know, his ambitions had been off very much realized by then. But he also knew that by stepping away, he would set a a tone and a uh, a model for the, the nation. And I think it's held very well.
0: No question about it. Now, in terms of his presidency itself, everything he did basically set the precedent for – Every other president that came after him from forming a cabinet, from how you would address the president for when you should veto a bill to uh, any number of, of other things. His second term as president, and it's difficult for us to imagine now because so many of us view George Washington as almost this historic demigod. His second term as president had its fair share of difficulties, didn't it? It did.
1: Um, he, he actually set that precedent as well, which is most of our two-term <laughs> presidents, the second term isn't as good. <laughs> and that was his experience, too.
0: And what were some of the difficulties? What were the, the issues that he was facing and dealing with at the time?
1: Well, the the country got swept up into the Napoleonic Wars, which were over in Europe. But we had a have a serious faction that was very uh, sympathetic to the French, who had allied with us during the Revolution and had been essential to our victory over the British. Um, and there were others uh, identified with the uh, Federalist Party or the emerging Federalist Party, who sympathized with Britain and felt that you know those were the people we shared a heritage with, a language with, a culture. And also the people that we did 95% of our trade with. And it would be madness not to get close to them and remain close to them for our own economic well-being. And that sort of took over our politics. Were you pro-French or were you pro-British? In hindsight, it looks kind of odd. Why, Why did we really care that much? But we did. And Washington got swept up in that. There were people calling for his impeachment in, during the second wow. term. It, wow. it was an ugly time. And to be blunt, he resented it. <laughs> he, he never took criticism very well, and he didn't like it.
0: Oh, yeah, I I can imagine. Talking with David O. Stewart, check out his book, uh, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. You know, when we think of the names most associated with the Revolutionary War, you think of people like George Washington, you think of uh, John Hancock, you think of maybe John Adams, Ben Franklin, and the other name, other than those four that you think of, is Thomas Paine. Uh, Thomas Paine and George Washington got into quite a bit of a feud, didn't they? What was behind that?
1: Well, Washington tremendously valued Paine's service during the, the war, and certainly his writings, Common Sense in particular, that rallied um, political feeling and support for the uh, the Patriot cause. Um, thereafter, Paine really became uh, a, a, a very strong advocate for for France in this dispute that I was describing that developed between our factions. Um, he and, and that was all folded into the French Revolution in 1789, which was, to some extent, inspired by our revolution. And so Paine thought we had a duty to the French to support them. He went over to France to try to work with them, and when the revolutionaries sort of overplayed their hand in France and were out of power, Payne was thrown into jail, and he spent 18 months in prison, Mm. and he felt very much that Washington should have gotten him out of prison faster. Now our ambassador there, James Monroe, actually did get Payne out of prison, ultimately, but pain it wasn't fast enough for pain, which I can understand. Prison is no fun, oh sure <laughs> so, uh, but that that was the the final straw between them.
0: You alluded to his decision not to run for a third term. Was that decision made because of a frustration with the nature of how he was being criticized in his second term? Was it uh, made due to health issues or was it made, as it's often cast, for a desire not to see one man become too powerful? I think even King George III said if Washington really does step away, he'll be the greatest man of all time or something to that effect. What was the what were the factors that led to Washington's decision not to seek a third term?
1: I think all three of those factors were were in play and, and were significant. Um, I also think he felt old. Mm. You know, by our standards, he wasn't that old. He was 65. But he had already outlived all of his siblings, or, or he would, and he was the eldest of them. So it was a real feeling that the Washington men didn't live very long, and frankly, most many of them had not. So he just felt he was played out, and it was time to go. Uh, he wanted to spend a few years back at Mount Vernon uh, with his 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 wife and i I think at a very personal level that's what he wanted um it, it also these other factors you talk about, particularly the notion that the nation should have to operate itself without this giant savior figure um, he he was aware of how the the support he commanded in the nation but he he wanted the nation to grow beyond that and he also was weary of the the fighting the the the, the squabbling uh, if you read his farewell address he, he addresses he he talks about that very clearly and very uh, uh, persuasively uh, as something that is inevitable in a democracy, but you really have to restrain yourself and not fall into it.
0: One of the aspects of his life and career that doesn't usually get talked about is the fact that uh, in his post-presidency, brief as it was, he had such credibility with the military that he came back to be the commanding general of the United States Army at the request of of President Adams. I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about that. A bit. Why did he come back to do that? If he was so weary, and what did he actually do in that role?
1: Well, happily, he didn't have to do much. Um, we had gotten into a, a pretty corrosive disagreement with France, uh, which had been. Uh, Diffarming our uh, uh, diplomats and frankly uh, demanding bribes from them, which was not something we were going to do. And there was real outrage. And there was a sort of uh, undeclared war between the two countries through their ships. Uh, it's, <coughs> pardon me, it's sometimes referred to as the quasi war. So, John Adams, we didn't have an army. I mean, we didn't like armies. So, John Adams said, well, gee, we probably ought to have one. <laughs> and, um, he just demanded that Washington take uh, agree to be commander in chief. Washington sort of dithered over it. He didn't much want to do it. But Adams appointed him without his consent. So Washington did answer the call. He had a few weeks when he huddled with some other people. He insisted that. You have Hamilton as his number two because he did not. Washington said he would never go into into the field. He would never go on campaign again. He was just too old and tired. Um, so he wanted someone much younger and more vigorous who could take on that duty if it was necessary. Happily, Adams was able to come to a diplomatic resolution of the situation. And Washington was never really required to do much.
0: You destroyed the myth about uh, chopping down a cherry tree and skipping a silver dollar over the Potomac. What about uh, what about Washington's teeth? I know he had a difficult time with teeth uh, throughout his whole life, but uh, his dentures weren't actually wooden, were they?
1: They were not wooden. They were uh, made from walrus tusks and uh, uh, steel or iron at the time. Uh, they had Springs, and they also did have some human teeth in it, which he had purchased, which was something pe- rich people did in the 18th century. <clears throat> the teeth are actually on display at Mount Vernon. They are ghastly. I mean, he, <laughs> when he becomes president, he has only one tooth left in his head. And that one fell out immediately. So I don't know how he ate or, or you know, how he could speak when you see this device. You could search it on Google Images, there'll be pictures up the wazoo about it. And
0: they're horrible. <laughs> <Pardon> me. <laughs> uh, our owner, John Katsimatidis, sent us all the list of George Washington's rules for civility this week. There's some very interesting ones on there. Uh, some might seem like common sense. Some you'd never think to think of. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about the context that those rules were written in. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite rule of civility from George Washington.
1: Well, I, I've always liked the one that about y- you shouldn't uh, put your food in your mouth with your knife, um, which seems pretty, pretty sensible.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: But, in fact, uh, I, am, I admit a minor- minority viewpoint on this. I think those rules were completely uns- insignificant to George Washington. Um, they were drafted by French monks in the 1590s almost two centuries before his, well, 150 years before his life. And I think the the document we have, which I have seen, uh, where he copied them out, I, I think it was a penmanship exercise. Really? Yeah. He, he was like a 13 years old. <clears throat> and it's in his workbook. And he never speaks of them again. Right, right. Interesting. You know, people for decades would write Washington for advice. Certainly his younger uh, relatives, he had his pile of nephews and nieces, would they would all write to Uncle George to find out, you know, the, the key to life and success. And he never mentioned them. And I, I just don't think – I think this is something we have invented. Um, it, it's nice for the publishing industry. They sell those, those – Slick little volumes of them, um, but I just don't think he, he he cared.
0: It's pretty interesting. I'm glad we uh, glad we clarified that. I could talk with you all day, uh, but uh, rapidly running out of time. Uh, two final questions I want to ask you. You have a chapter in your book called Wrestling with Sin and uh, George Washington is one of the founding fathers that is frequently in the targets of the cancelers and it's because he owns slaves and you write that he had uh, 135 slaves or so uh, at Mount Vernon. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about George Washington's relationship with the institution of slavery itself and his relationship with his slaves.
1: Uh, It's you know, not a pretty chapter. Uh, until he's becomes commander in chief of the Continental Army, so he's in his early forties. I could find no evidence that he had any second thoughts about slavery. It was just the world he lived in. The slaves, the enslaved people, were the labor force he had. Um, I think his service in the army with African-American soldiers who were suffering and dying and fighting for his freedom changed him. And he spends some time after the war saying he's going to be a good slave owner. That involved not breaking up families and that sort of thing. And after a few years, it seems that he really decided that that was ridiculous. You couldn't be a good slave owner. And he then spent about the last 10 years of his life trying to Get get out of slavery himself. <clears throat> it was very difficult in his situation, as you say. He had 130 slaves at Mount Vernon that he owned, but there were also another almost 200 who were owned by his wife Martha's first husband's estate. This gets more legally complicated than anybody wants to at this time of the morning. Okay. But you, he couldn't he couldn't free them. It was not in his power. He had to buy them, and then he could free them. And he was never could raise the cash. It would have been a ton of money, and he never had much ready cash. He was land poor, his adult life. So in his will, he finally dealt with this as best he could, and he freed his own slaves, the ones he actually owned, 130 of them. And he did in his last 10 or 15 years frequently say in private, he wished there would be gradual emancipation laws through the whole country. The Northern States mostly adopted these and it took sometimes 20, sometimes 40 years before the generations would turn over enough that slavery ended in those States, but it did. But the Southern States would never go for it. And he never went public his Mm. preference i think he didn't because he thought it it wasn't going to work and maybe he just didn't have the will to do it because they were all his relatives and friends who were the slave owners um but it's not a glorious episode uh he wasn't the worst but you know it's hard not to look at at his trajectory and say well there must have been something more he could, could have done.
0: We've been talking with David O. Stewart. You can check out his book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. He also has a number of uh, interesting books, both nonfiction and fiction. And I have to tell you, David, I think the uh, history that you have writing uh, fiction actually comes across really well uh, in that this book, the George Washington book, is eminently readable. At times it does read like a novel or a political thriller. So it does seem like you have... Have the same sort of dramatic sense in writing nonfiction that you do in fiction, but I will um, I will end with this. You know, I, I do a podcast where we interview a lot of people about the mob, uh, lawyers, mobsters, you know, uh, family members, uh, victims, all sorts of folks, and I always ask what they think the most realistic film about the mob is. I'm going to ask you the same thing about George Washington. He's been portrayed in film so many times. If you had to pick either a favorite depiction of George Washington or the most accurate depiction of George Washington in cinema. What would you recommend to folks?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question because I don't think he's ever been done very well. Um, You know, the Adams Chronicles or the John Adams, I guess, the HBO series
0: Mm. with uh, Paul Um, Giamatti.
1: Yeah, yeah, he played Adams, which was not surprising casting from my perspective, but I thought worked very well. Um, they took a shot at Washington, which was thoughtful and wasn't wrong. Um, but it's hard to find an actor who has the same level of command and presence that Washington did. That's mm. just, you know, really tough. I mean, it's... I tend to think a guy like Liam Neeson maybe could do it or leave Schreiber. I mean, these you have to you've got to be big and, <laughs> and you've got to come across as big. Um, and I forget the name of the fellow who p- portrayed him in that series, but he, he gave it a shot. He, he did um, capture Washington's reluctance to speak on public issues until he knew exactly what he thought. I think on occasion it came across as Washington was a little dumb, which I think is wrong. <laughs> so I, I think the the best w- version of Washington is still to be made.
0: All right. Uh, David Stewart, I appreciate the time very much. I'll look forward to chatting again soon. Whatever you're doing to celebrate uh, George Washington's birthday today, I hope you have fun.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, uh, David O. Stewart. You could check out uh, his book on George Washington or any of his other uh, books, which are terrific. You can go to his website, davidostewart.com, spelled exactly as it sounds. It's davidostewart.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'll take your calls in a moment at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of midnight. Midnight.